Welcome to the Scandinavian Mind podcast. I'm Conrad Olson, founder and editor-in-chief of Scandinavian Mind. My guest today is Christian von Essen, host of the popular podcast Heja Framtiden, or Go Future. He's also the author of the book What Happens Now with the Future, about the world after Corona. Christian is one of Sweden's most prolific futurists and writers on technological advancements in healthcare, food, education and beyond. In this episode, we discuss how sustainable and green mindsets will stay with us post-corona, how education is on the verge of transforming completely, and how new medical breakthroughs like chip implants will disrupt the medical industry as we know it. We also talk about the fact that many new ideas and companies will likely come out of this crisis, much like the tech boom after financial crisis in 2008. I had a great time talking to Christian. He's a great thinker and just like me, has his roots in music journalism and self-publishing. The Scandinavian Mind podcast is a bi-weekly show about the intersection of lifestyle and technology. Every Wednesday we publish an in-depth interview with an innovator from the worlds of design, fashion, beauty, mobility or tech. And every Friday we publish a panel talk or other behind-the-scenes content from the world of Scandinavian Mind. I'd like to thank the Helio co-working space for hosting us in their podcast studio. And don't forget to sign up to our newsletter to stay updated on the latest news and learn about upcoming talks and clubhouse sessions. Visit scandinavianmind.com newsletter. Here now, my conversation with Christian von Essen. Enjoy. All right, I'm here with Christian von Essen, uh, host of Heja Framtiden, Hello Future. Christian, how are you? I'm fine, thank you. Thanks for having me. Feels very good to have you here. You're in the hot seat now. This is also the same podcast studio that you are recording your own show. Uh, we meet in the corridors. Sometime. Exactly. Christian, you have a very soothing and calm voice. Thank you. ASMR compatible. I, <laughs> perhaps. No, because I, I, I was thinking about this, this, and I thought it was sort of analogous to how you approach this subject in a way, because uh, you know I I enjoy this subject. I follow a lot of sort of the international, you know, futurists, and and there are a lot of people you can you can listen to about how everything will change in the future and how you know AI is taking over and we will become cyborgs and and everything. And uh, as I'm sure you you follow as well, but. It, it's my sort of understanding that you have a more laid-back approach to the future. Am I right about that? Mm, yeah, I think so. Maybe a bit more down-to-earth because um, now I've met... I started out in 2017 in the fall and I released the first episode in 2018. Uh, so I've done 200 interviews now and released uh, 200 episode just a few weeks ago and um, I think the more people I meet uh, the more topics I dive into uh, the more perspectives I get um, 
the more nuanced the the puzzle becomes and it's impossible to say something very certain about the future mm. uh, so i think in the beginning i was more interested in those uh, you know uh, real futurists uh, predicting stuff and uh, releasing great quotes like uh, in 2045 everything will be uh, but uh, eventually i found that to be uh, um, less interesting i think mm. less fascinating so i started i mean i i continued talking to the those interesting futurists but i also started talking to people that i thought were creating the future you know working with uh, sustainability working with uh, disruptive business models or or actually people that i thought were the future people that are really interesting and that will make a difference and impact uh, somewhere along the line so th those are the three different categories i would say i i try to incorporate into the podcast so let's go into those categories. I'm super curious. And, and one of the reasons I really wanted to do this is because I, I'm going to try to tease out your own uh, uh, ideas or, or your own uh, perspective on the future. But we should also mention you, you did release a book uh, a few months back uh, in, in Swedish. It's called Vad händer nu med framtiden? Uh, what happens now with the future? And I also thought this title was interesting, is that you, the word now is very prevalent. Yeah. So, which kind of goes back to this sort of down-to-earth thing. It's not about what what is the future, it's what is the future right now. I'm, I'm sure that was conscious. Can you talk about that? Yeah, um, actually, I think I had um, the idea of releasing or writing, a, a, you know, the big Heia Framtiden book, you know, for a positive future, all the mm. different trends we see. And the minute I started pitching this uh, idea, the pandemic escalated. So the first publishers said, well, that's interesting. Let's uh, get back to us in six months or a year and see what happens with this vi virus. And then I spoke to another publisher, um, a friend of mine, and... Uh, we said, let's, let's go back because, and he, he said, you have all these people um, that you're in touch with all the time. Why don't you go back to a number of them and ask what's happening now? Uh, so I started, I started uh, contacting 20 of the most interesting podcast guests, and I continued our previous discussion um, with an update, like, how is this pandemic disrupting everything? Mm. Uh, the future we talked about a year ago, what is happening now with that? So it was really interesting. Uh, I spent the month of May to 2020 working on this, and I wrote it in its entirety and did all the interviews in one month. So it's really a, a timestamp in a way. And you could say it's... Uh, idiotic to do such a thing during a pandemic but i think it's it was also quite interesting to see because you could you could then predict sort of where things were going and um, i think many of the topics we talk about are interesting in the 2020s mm. um, not only because of the pandemic but also because of the pandemic well, of course, there's a lot of talk about acceleration, that the pandemic has accelerated yeah. trends and so forth. But I, I just wanted to say also, I mean, 
when I first got hands of the book or heard about it, I was like, okay, it's going to be a transcription. He, he took the best interviews, just oh, packed yeah. them together. That, that would be sort of the predictable move in a way. Mm. And what I really enjoyed about it was that it was much more reflective in a way. And that when I think sometimes when you talk about book writing, is that you're supposed to write 100 pages and then start and just scrap those. I didn't have time to do that. <laughs> <laughs> no, but what I'm saying is, is like you, you, it seems like you went sort of for the for the juice right away, and you yeah. talked about what you know, given that you have this sort of time span, what happens now, and you can sort of, you went in it and reflected on what these guests have told you. Uh, yeah, exactly. And since I already had the idea from the beginning, I knew more or less which topics I wanted to to touch upon. Mm. Um, that made it quite easy to start to write because I was like, okay, this is the guest, this is the topic. Um, um, let's dig into what my thoughts on it are. Let's dig into what we talked about last time and then the interview and then some conclusions. So um, it was really fun to write in a way. Uh, I found uh, the flow, <laughs> the mm. drive mm. writing it. And also everyone was available because <laughs> <Everyone was laughs> no one was giving lectures they didn't even have the digital lectures back then in May. all right yeah you know so everyone's just sitting around at home so so what, what did you learn what, what were what were some of the surprising stuff you you found out during this uh, process of writing the book well um maybe we should mention first that uh, it's not so much about the pandemic and the the crisis and the death tolls and everything that, that I mean that's absolutely tragic and uh, nothing you can uh, sort of sweep away but this book is about what happens after mm. and it's uh, it has a future optimistic approach and I was maybe a bit surprised that everyone had an optimistic spin on on their uh, subjects mm. even when you talk about systemic racism you talk about uh, inequalities, inequities, um, talk about AI, uh, existential risk. Everyone could think of something positive that may come out of this uh, this crisis afterwards. And that is to raise the question, to have an open discussion, to uh, put these things on the table again. So that, I'm sorry to interrupt, but isn't that what happens when you have sort of a futuristic mindset in a way, if you think about the future long term? I feel like most people that that do that get some sort of optimistic perspective. It's easier to get one because you don't have this sort of immediate uh, threats at hand. Yeah, the, the reptile brain <laughs> <laughs> uh, approach to to the news media. No, I I try to uh, turn off news as much as possible. Um, I like talking to people, experts, scientists, uh, read books. Of course, I'm also influenced by fast news from from social media, etc. I'm not on Twitter anymore, um, <laughs> or at least I'm not checking Twitter. Mm. Um, but yeah, I think I think when you have a more helicopter perspective, and I try to uh, implement that in the book, you sort of see things moving in um, in another way. You see the the ma- major positive uh, developments in the world that's not reflected in the news media uh, in an everyday situation. And uh, I think my guests kind of had that approach as well when I talked to them. Even when it came to um, business and business environment, 
Um, as many of them were like, yes, this is a crisis. Many businesses are going to go bankrupt. It's terrible. But there are huge opportunities um, afterwards because the market will, you know, um, wash out the bad companies and mm. there will be room for new interesting business models. And I think that was, that was what we saw in 2008 in the financial crisis when uh, all these amazing businesses like uh, Uber and Airbnb and uh, Slack and Pinterest, they started yeah. during that era. So, talk to me some concrete examples here. Some, you know, you have twenty interviews, mm. um, ranging from you know, it's doctors, it's it's uh, lecturers, it's philosophers, and and so forth. Was uh, was there someone that you started with that you like? I really need this person because that's the starting point. Um, not. Really, I I wanted to have a diverse range of topics, and I wanted to have a diverse diverse range of people. Mm. So it was more like a a puzzle. Um, so I mean, Mona Ismail Sade, Doctor Mona, is yeah. really interesting. Uh, she was also in quarantine in Spain at the moment when we talked, <laughs> so it was it gave a sort of dynamic to it. Mm. Um, and she's. Uh, um, She's a scientist focusing on the brain, yeah. more or less. So yeah. that was really interesting. We have, um, of course, Thomas Bjorkman talking about um, you know philosophy and metamodernism, um, and we had really interesting discussions uh, a few years ago. And now we could sort of catch up and see what's happening with the personal development. Where does he see things going? Um, are we are we seeing a more mature um, sense-making process in a way because of the pandemic, or do we see increased polarization? Maybe both. Mm. <laughs> so mm. uh, I, I think m my approach is increasingly um, both and instead of either or. I think the word hybrid I hear more and more. Yeah. Everyone's talking about hybrid. It's yeah, like, exactly. Will we never go back to the office? For, that's the first thing people say. We mm. will all go. And then it's like, there's going to be a rebound. Everyone wants to go back to the office. <laughs> yeah. Everyone's going to travel as soon as they are allowed. <laughs> yeah, to. it's going to explode. There's a ketchup effect. Um, so yeah, I, I don't think everyone's going to travel. I don't think everyone's going to go back to the office. I mm. don't think no one's going to travel or no one's going to back, go back to the office. I think it's going to be, like you say, uh, something in between. Um, but even something in between is um, far less than it was before. Sure. I mean, just take any topic. Take this working from home. I mean, just many companies are talking about maybe two, three days a week in the office or, or something like that, maybe 50-50. Or, or, but just if it only, you know, if we would go back and have a situation where 30% of the time uh, people would be at home compared to I think I think it's ten percent or something before the pandemic, like the work from mm. home or, or like remote work. That's a huge difference in in commuting, in in buying lunches, and you know people spending money around their offices or, yeah. and, and 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 such. So it's it's still a lot of and and I would imagine people spending more time. I know I have in their home and in the interior and, and stuff like that. So yeah, yeah, I'm working on a, a future report now for a, a large food company, and uh, we discussed this a lot in, in the text. Um, the interest for 
local produce, mm. uh, an increased interest for nature, for uh, moving outside of the urban areas. Um, and that's not something that will just immediately rebound <laughs> once the virus is over. Mm. Uh, I think it's a, it's a new mindset in a way. And also the increased interest in sustainability. We saw what happened when you start, when you stopped polluting. You saw that uh, CO2 levels went down immediately. Uh, smog faded out. Uh, polluted rivers became clear all of a sudden. So uh, I think many realized that we can actually reverse things. We can make a difference. I'm not saying everyone should live in the forest because that's um, it's not sustainable either. Uh, urban urban areas are, are sustainable in the way that uh, you can share lots of resources. Mm. But uh, something in between is probably more sustainable. Yeah, and it, having a future mindset or talking about the future, it's, it's so much about direction, isn't it? I mean, it's mm. not about these sort of fixed uh, black and white scenarios, but it gives direction. And I'm sure writing a report like you're working on now or in... And we certainly feel it in our work as well. It's it's about where are we headed? Where you, you know you need some sense of direction. That's what people are searching for. There's a yeah. yearning for that, especially in sort of uncertain times. That's that's why you see this sort of sort of concrete headlines. I think is that now is this is going to happen. Uh, there's a sense of security in in anyone that can come and say this is the way it is. Yeah, some kind of authoritarian leader. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I mean, and and that's. That's why I think um, authoritarian leaders have become um, more prevalent in the mm. past uh, few years because uh, people are so uncertain and the future is so uncertain and there's so many things to consider. So you need someone going in and saying, you know, I can make everything better. Mm. You know, don't listen to the other guys. I mean, I see, I th- I see things from my perspective uh, with an optimistic mindset I see the trends. I see, you know, increased um, sustainability interest. I see capital moving towards uh, fossil-free solutions. I see uh, interesting new business models, uh, you know, capitalizing on this in a, in a, in a sustainable way. And it, but if you have a negative mindset, it would be like a reverse side of this. It would be, you know, you only see. <clears throat> increased polarization, mental health issues, uh, inequalities, stuff like that, mm. um, privacy issues. And sure, I mean, all those things are really important to tackle. They, they are huge problems, but no one is saying we don't have problems in the future. We're just saying that let's move towards working on solutions for a greener, brighter future, not you know, stay on uh, nagging about the negative aspects. I think that's more, I think that gives much more energy, uh, at least in my opinion. Yeah, I was going to ask, why is it important to be positive? Um, yeah, that's a good question. I, I don't I don't know if positive is, maybe that's the wrong word. Maybe it's optimistic. Uh, yeah, right? hopeful, optimistic. Mm. Um, and I, I know some people may probably see me as uh, naive, um, but uh, the podcast is called Heia Framte. It means like, go future, yeah. share the future. It doesn't mean everything is perfectly bright and happy in the that's future. That's true. I, I just uh, offhand <laughs> translated it as hello future, but that's that's true. That's not the translation. Um, 
so we can absolutely talk about problems, but I want to talk about problems with a solution in in mind, sort of a solution-focused approach, because mm. that's what I think is constructive. So uh, let's talk about these different areas that you feel is important to talk about. You mentioned sustainability uh, and and sustainability and and future. Sometimes uh, when you uh, talk about futurist or think about it, it's like well, you have to go to Mars and we have to do all these things. When I hear you, it seems like very linked to sustainability. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and. and uh <clears throat> going to Mars is also linked to sustainability in a way because you um, you gather l- lots of research that can be applied to Earth. I have two very interesting episodes with with a space scientist, and um, they develop you know how can we survive in a closed ecosystem? Mm. How can we provide food, um, sanitation, water, and that's really great sustainability practices when you apply them on earth and in urban areas for example uh, so um, and also the the whole satellite um uh, development in in space and the, the the mapping of natural disasters you can you can even you can even spot like um poachers in on earth right uh, from this uh, this technology so there are lots of things that happen in space that that uh, provide benefit for us uh, on earth and i i didn't really have that perspective at all i thought it was just like you like there are lots of billionaires wanting to you know uh show off yeah <laughs> <laughs> but also they are they are, they are fighting for resources in space there are uh, huge uh, material resources mm. on asteroids etc but yeah uh, space aside i think um now we're in an interesting interesting point in time because sustainability work has become integrated into the business models now it's not just some some guy sitting alone in a corner you know do some csr thing exactly um and i was thinking about this with regards to the fashion industry that that you represent in a way that maybe the fashion industry is a bit later on to the cycle um so it's still very difficult for the fashion brands to talk about sustainability well, um, there's a lot of signaling going on you know obviously fashion is so much about uh marketing as well so it's easy to just weigh where you, you you put some ingredient in and now we have this sustainable collection it's yeah. some like pet bottles in some part of the garment which you know really it's not it's not uh, it doesn't necessarily make it sustainable no it's a, it's an interesting innovation but yeah. but um, <clears throat> i mean it's difficult to use the word sustainability when you work inside a system that is not sustainable right right so that's why i think uh, it sounds a bit like greenwashing in a way mm. when in fact you of course should be praised for your all your efforts in making something better but uh, i i know i i have a close friend w- uh, working in um, the fashion industry for many years in csr mm. and she has become more and more important in their companies uh, with more and more people in her department but it's still very difficult to communicate because the top management says oh maybe we should wait and see yeah. maybe we shouldn't talk about the water issues because uh, we don't do enough on these other issues and um 
I also think that's a bit of a problem because it's very easy to uh, to knock down someone saying they're great at one aspect because they're not perfect in all other aspects. Right. Um, so brands, um, I think, have a difficult time navigating how they should communicate. <laughs> I mean, you must notice this. In, in don't your, get me started. Uh, I was about to say, but yeah, but I. What I would think would be interesting to talk about, and I mean, the way I see it with fashion is, you know, the the the, the one single problem is is overproduction, and uh, and and underuse in a way. So, you know, I, I repeat this all the time. I think we're at 130, somewhere between 130, 150 billion garments a year. The, the, the number varies. It's hard to. Uh, calculate, I'm sure, uh, 30% of those never touches the consumer. So mm. it's 30% overproduction uh, because we have to fill stores and warehouses and, you know, and y- you you take it out every season as well. So now this is n- not applicable anymore. Uh, we use the garments, uh, you know, up to three times at average. So there, if you just, you know, play with these numbers, you can do a- enormous uh, change. Um, but what I find interesting is, and I try to inject this in all my conversations, try to define what fashion is. So if you, if you see fashion as identity that we project to the people around us, it, uh, and if you differentiate it from clothes, because you know, if, we, if we just see it as clothes and stop producing clothes right now, we would, we would outfit the, the entire population of Earth for another 50 years. That was a number I've heard. I'm not sure it's exactly true, but you know. All I'm, the trends come back once in a while, <laughs> so it's no problem. Exactly. Um, I'm sure you, you want new underwear uh, every <laughs> once in a while. But it, so it, it's just to illustrate, it's not about you know, outfitting yourself it is about identity and the fashion industry, as it looks today, is based on uh, a notion that we need to feed the audience with new, newly produced stuff every season, yeah, every we three work months. work with seasons. That's a problem. Yeah, that's a huge problem. But what I find interesting uh, is if you define it as identity, what we, you know, I, I always use my daughter as an example. She's 10 years old, she comes home from school. She does not want her allowance to go to new clothes. Uh, she gets that anyway. She wants new skins for her avatars in the, yeah. in the platforms that she's playing. That's you her ha- identity. That's her. And th- that's where she also meets her friends because mm. she comes home from school. She jumps on Roblox. Uh, she calls up her friend. And, uh, and then they, they hang, around, hang out in this world for an hour. And I'm sure it's it's pretty easy to imagine this will be some kind of VR equipment in the future. You just take on a pair of glasses and they will have a much more immersive experience in meeting each other. And then, of course, they're interested in, in how they look. I mean, you, you have a Fortnite selling $2.5 billion worth of skins every year. And th- those skins have nothing to do with your performance in the game. It's just about how you look, right? Mm. Um, so have you seen any simil- similar... Um, um, arguments or, or innovations uh, when it comes to fashion? Do people talk about fashion in a different way like this? I think that's a question you you can answer better <laughs> than me. But uh, Yeah, I'm curious if you've seen it. <clears throat> Maybe you've seen something I haven't seen. No, but I think I've, I see exactly the same. I have My kids are four, uh, nine, and 11. Mm-hmm. So the older ones are um, always on Roblox, uh, TikTok, Minecraft, 
And at first, I was really reluctant to give them money or to allow them to use their allowance mm. on buying Robux. But then after a while, they were like, well, at least they're not buying other crap. They're not buying plastics <laughs> exactly. that they throw out. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, or Pokemon cards. Um, so, sure, if you want to, you know, uh, dress up your avatar in a cool way or want to buy a new sword or... Uh, make new friends in a, in a, in a way, mm. uh, go ahead. You know. um, and uh, my daughter actually did something interesting. She She's on TikTok as well, of course. Um, but she, she has taken on a more productive role on TikTok. So she started saying on TikTok that I will, I will uh, draw your character from Roblox. I will draw your avatar in my manga style mm. and uh, it was a huge response people were like oh me 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 do me please and she picked out one each day and she drew a, a cool uh, you know more like uh, street art manga style right. and she posted it and uh, she has now 10,000 followers on TikTok that's amazing yeah and she continues doing other art stuff and uh, anime videos and stuff like that, but it's uh, so fascinating to stand stand beside and you know, what what did you say? Do you have ten thousand? Who are they? <laughs> why why are they here? Um, and she's eleven. <clears throat> so um, yeah, coming back to your question, I think definitely that um, as more people live online, they, of course they will want to. Uh, signal something mm. and it will use uh, whatever tools they have to to uh, you know uh, bring out their own identity mm. to stand out and um, maybe the fashion industry is a bit late picking up on that as well I don't know well I think it goes to show that we we will always need designers we will always need yeah, the people definitely. creating the stuff uh, and uh, you know I, I've I, I think we see a situation where the fashion industry is very ripe for innovation by other industries. So um, I'm working on a project called Smart Fashion right now where we discuss these things uh, together with Fashion Innovation Center. Uh, and, you know, what's to say that, or, or perhaps this, what will happen when, you know, Netflix decides to sell clothes? Just, just take that example. You know, they have two, 200 million users, which they know a lot about their tastes and what they like, what kind of TV shows they, they look look for. And they so they have a lot of data and information about their sort of visual preferences. I'm sure you could add apply a layer of, of just selling garments or, or selling selling fashion, uh, you know, above that. Spotify, the same thing. You know, I mean, music has always been very linked to fashion. Spotify knows what music I listen to. Uh, they probably know if I'm, you know, if take something simplistic, like if I'm into country, I probably enjoy cowboy boots or hats or something or, or Western shirts. Uh, I'm, I'm sure, you know, I'm sure there's, there's something uh, to this. And, you know, if that would happen, it would not be a fashion player that would disrupt the fashion industry. Yeah. Because uh, I think uh, the the big fashion players has too much riding on the, the their current business model, where they actually sell these sort of uh, cheaply produced garments at scale. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting um, development. Um, I 
definitely, I mean, we're not surprised anymore when, you know, if, if Google would release uh, an amazing car tomorrow, uh, no. we wouldn't be surprised anymore. Or if they would be the houses or offices. Maybe they are already, I don't know. But, uh, you know, th these uh, these tech companies, will they have so much data, they have so much influence, of course they will move into another other verticals and, mm. and, and business models. So t talk to me how you found this topic of the future. Wh wh when did that, you know, st stuck with you? It started out right after high school. The Swedish music magazine Pop had just uh, shut down. Mm. And I thought, I had, of course, hubris. I was 19. And I said, uh, I'm going to do the next <laughs> the next uh, Scandinavian music magazine. I'm going to do it in English. And I'm going to have musicians and interesting people writing in it. Um, so I uh, I went I moved to Oslo I studied in Norway, and I started doing this project on the side. I was studying marketing and economics, and I worked with the school paper, so I had access to all the computers, um, access to printers, and um, I started interviewing bands and artists that came to Oslo, knocked on the door backstage, and uh, uh, and they were happy because no one else was doing it. <laughs> So, uh, um, and already back then, I I come back to this, uh, you know, diverse mindset and uh, the both and. Mm. So I wanted a magazine that would reflect all the different genres. You know, I would have a black metal guy writing a column. I would have a drum and bass producer interview. I would have uh, an interview with uh, some guy from Live, the, the grunge rock band. Um, I would interview Petter, the Swedish rapper. I would have refused. You know. <laughs> so it was a very, very um, messy. And it was, is this was print? Is yeah. It was a print magazine? Yeah. yeah. I, I made uh, three issues yeah. from my student uh, loan um, during these two years in Oslo. And I think, in a way, that's exactly what I'm doing now. Mm. You know, I, I take all these interesting people from very different areas um, of uh, well the future now mm. and back then it was music but it's the same thing it's it's passion driven um, I'm terrible at selling ads and sponsor deals I just do it because mm. I have to and I think <clears throat> um, and after that I came from the the blog side I um, I did a, a travel blog a music blog and got paid for it. So I was like, okay, this is interesting. I can actually work with stuff I love and uh, uh, make a living out of it. Mm. Um, and then I've been editor-in-chief at some uh, very specific industry magazines, like Travel Industry Magazine. I did a construction industry magazine for a few, a few um, issues. I did a parenting magazine. And then... Uh, I didn't have any own projects for a while. I did a lot of commercial work. And I said, I, I knew that I had something in me. I knew that I had a project that I just couldn't find. Hmm. I didn't know exactly what it was. So I asked myself, what is most fun to do? What is the most interesting? What is the, 
what is it that you know tickles me and um i realized that every time every time i talked about trends and the future and predictions and uh, i spoke to visionaries that was the most interesting mm. part of the work um and i already had been dabbling with podcasts i wanted to do a travel industry podcast i tried to do a travel podcast with another guy um and then i thought well an interview podcast with a broad range of topics talking about the future that must be that must be really interesting because i meet these people and the the article ends up somewhere and no one reads it right so collecting these into one platform um and i realized that maybe i could actually build a media platform from that once i get started so i started talking about it and then i got pushed in different directions and then eventually i found right people that could help me you know just get started mm mm That's interesting how how your ability to sort of jump between different worlds has enabled you to do this uh, show because it really you know when you think about it you you're interviewing scientists or space people or people in in food or many many different uh, uh, sort of walks of life yeah. but what combines them is sort of this uh, futuristic uh, approach or where you see you try i guess it's it's like a search for the future in a way as well you you try to find people that that give a clue of where we're headed yeah and i try to find new pieces to the puzzle all mm. the time um like oh we haven't done much on brains on on the brain in a while mm. so then i try to look for someone who can talk about that so i try to um i try to make it um diverse and um sort of interesting package. So w- will this puzzle ever be laid with w- <laughs> is there another epic not. book or something where you can sort of piece this together? Um I think I will do more uh specific books. Mm. Um well now I'm writing with uh, another podcast guy called Henrik Smålack uh runs a podcast called Under Femton uh, he meets experts and and cuts uh, the uh, episode down to 15 I'm, minutes. I'm impressed by that guy doing yeah. it under 15 minutes. <laughs> <coughs> that must be awfully difficult. Yeah. Um so yeah we we're running a book about digital trends um uh, in a more general and educated fashion. Mm. So we we want to sort of show what all the buzzwords are about. Mm. Um it's not for, you know, futuristic managers, it's for the public and students. Mm. So um yeah that's interesting and but I think for my own books I will probably dive into more specific topics. I'm thinking of now maybe because now this book is called is that of the subtitle uh, 20 visions about Sweden after corona. Right. I think next one would be probably 20 visions about uh, the future of food, mm. 20 visions about future of education or learning. Um, I think that would be a, an interesting uh, way to go forward. I, I, it sounds amazing. Obviously, huge areas where where sort of ripe for disruption. Let's let's talk about uh, education in a bit. I'm I'm also fascinated about that topic. Uh, what kind of trends do you see? What are the interesting movements? <clears throat> um, well, I think. Um, I think it's the same with with healthcare in a way that there are huge industries that are quite slow in adapting mm. but they have 
enormous opportunities for for disruption and i think um the personal personalization is is a key here that you like someone mentioned the other day you will not go to see a doctor you will want to see my doctor or your doctor right. <laughs> not my doctor but uh, stay away from my doctor <laughs> exactly no but you would want something to you want someone that knows about you to have your has your data yeah. and can uh, you know make assumptions and and analysis that sounds like an ai yeah exactly that's where ai come in in a way and i think it's the same with education you would not um i mean we we're used to the the sort of old school linear um approach and the industrial um approach to to education as well where you have uh, one sender and we have 30 receivers and mm. and um there's not a lot of interactivity perhaps and it's difficult it's difficult to cater to every single individual need in the classroom so what's going to happen with the traditional sort of you know students at their desks and a, and a teacher in the front because i you know one of the things i observe is that it's when when there are all these kids coming out they have this sort of special needs and it seems to me that and you know my daughter have her needs and I, I can tell that parents are very sort of attentive to their children's needs now. So yeah. as a teacher, I can see they're sort of getting more and more stressed because it's not this block of people of, of like 20 or 25 people that they need to cater to. It becomes like in, in the beginning, it was like two or three were different, have to take care of them. Mm. Now it's pretty much everyone are different. Everyone are unique. Everyone has their sort of educational level. And it and it freaks them out in a way the teachers. So uh, how will we help the teachers, uh, or, or will there be a, a teacher in the front? Yeah, I think uh, the teacher will stay, but uh, the teacher will be um, helped by, for example, AI uh, tools. Um, and it's all, and also there's a lot of ed tech going on behind the scenes. Mm. You have like attendance. Uh, you have uh, testing platforms. Um, also, keeping an eye on their health and the mental health, I think, is really interesting. Um, having some technology that makes assessments in that way, I think, would be really, really helpful. Because uh, it's really easy to miss someone that is not feeling well. Right. Um, and also, another s- Swedish company uh, called um, Lexplore. They have developed an eye tracking device or eye tracking technology that provides an analysis of if you have uh, dyslexia or not mm. within five minutes. Wow! So uh, that can save a lot of suffering and uh, you don't anxiety. have to wait for five years until they, you know. or twenty years or yeah. thirty years. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So so those kind of kinds of tools are really interesting, and you see all these um, online platforms sort of. Uh, competing with the old-fashioned, old traditional uh, educational settings. Mm. So I think also we come back to the hybrid, right? <laughs> hybrid model. But yeah, it's a it's a slow system mm. to to disrupt. And this uh, 2020 crisis has, uh, of course, as everyone knows, definitely leapfrog leapfrogged this uh, this development. So I have an ed, ed, ed tech expert in the book, and um, she uh, she says that these companies uh, 
they gained huge interest and a huge uh, client base all of a sudden, but no one was really interested in paying for their services. So they had to improve accessibility, customer support, servers, without you know seeing the cash mm. uh, up front. So um, in some countries, they these industries have been actually um, rewarded with with some extra extra funding from the government. I don't think it was like that in Sweden. So so they were like. It's really interesting that they are booming now, but maybe some will not make it because of the cash flow problem. Right, right. <laughs> you don't have the systems in place to pay them. Pay them, and no, exactly. There's no the, budgets the, in, in the schools and municipalities were already, you know, yeah. uh, drained. So, uh, so they were just uh, signing up for uh, free trials or, uh, um, you know, the, the 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 cheapest the cheapest solutions. Mm. But yeah, I think that's a really interesting, interesting development. And also, of course, uh, when you when you have more AR and VR uh, implementation in education, I think that would be really, really cool. Yeah, yeah, I'm, I've been looking into that recently. I think it's fascinating. Hmm. But I also think it's, there's like a tipping point that hasn't happened yet in terms of we don't have everyone does not have an AR VR. De- I guess we have an AR device with our phones. We don't hmm. have a really have a VR device that's that's uh, accessible and everyone can buy and and use. No, yeah, I, <clears throat> I think many people thought that. Perhaps Apple or someone would would release something really accessible mm. a few years ago, but uh, uh, and I know you talked to Emma uh, Riederstad. Yeah, exactly. Warping uh, media. Yeah. yeah, and we talked about this uh, three years ago. Yeah, um, but didn't happen. But uh, I think um, once technology is ready and it will be cheap enough for mm. people to actually buy, then we will see more interesting applications as well. Because it's like a chicken and the egg situation where you don't want to develop amazing tools for a technology that no one uses well it's kind of like a, the classic curve i'm sure there's a, i think there's a name to it but where sort of you see first you see innovation then you get all these headlines everything is going to change i think we're at like eight years ago the google glasses came out and like now the future is here you know we're going to have mm. wear wear things and we're going to have computers in our faces and we're going to detect people and you know all these different applications you know eight years goes by it, it's not widely used but I'm sure in the background, sort of boiling our innovations and, and when someone like Facebook or Google or, or Apple just releases the device, it could be like instantaneous in a way. Mm. So I'm, I, I probably that's what's you know uh, happening in the background when it comes to VR, or at least at least that's my understanding. Yeah, probably. Yeah, I think it's probably like that with all these technologies. Uh, Peter Diamandis, uh, they, he talks about... Um, Six Ds, yeah. where uh, digitization and uh, uh, I think deceptive is is uh, one of the Ds in the beginning. All right, but yeah. you don't really see the exponential curve mm. because it's just like from one percent to two percent or two to four, mm. um, and then it then it, when it happens, it's a uh, uh, demonetization, democratization, etc. Decentralization. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. You can never remember all of them, right? <laughs> <laughs> Not at the moment. <clears throat> but, um, yeah, I, mean, I, I think it's the same happening with, with solar energy, for, for instance. Right. Like uh, people say that, oh, it's just 1%, it's nothing, mm. you can't really use it in Sweden. Uh, how can you store energy? Uh, there's, there's too many obstacles. Mm. But then, you know, 
it has gone from basically nothing to 1% to 2%. And uh, now when it's actually the cheapest new energy source, of course the capital will flow towards solar. Maybe not as much in Sweden, but in warmer countries. And um, that's when we see tipping points. Mm. And um, yeah, that's why I'm even even doing this weird pandemic and these times. I'm still optimistic that these main these major trends will will sort of converge. That you see technological innovation, you see behavioral change, um, and you see uh, price drops, and the capital will move towards towards a more sustainable solution. So um, I think a lot will happen in the 20s. So, so what, what, is there something happening around the corner that you see that the that, that general public does not see? When you sit, you know, okay, maybe you're not sitting at dinner so often right now, but but when you describe it to people who are not into this sort of fu- futuristic uh, themes or uh, is, what's, what's the big uh, aha moments for people when you talk about, so this is, this is going to happen now? <laughs> now? Or know, soon. Um, yeah, I, I think one of the interesting topics in the book was when I talked to Hannes Sjöblad, Hannes Sapiens, he's mm. changing his name now, is <laughs> uh, biohacker, and um, he talks a lot about um, how we can disrupt the healthcare system. And when he talked about, I mean, he works with the... With, um, implants in, right. in in the hand right so you can uh, you have a implanted chip and it can uh, pr- provide some information and it used to be you could you know open doors or go to the gym and and now with the new generation of implants you can you can track some some vitals in in your body so um, I'm not sure exactly wh- which which parameters I'm not gonna go into that but uh, let's say you can track uh, blood pressure or mm. uh, uh, oxygen or um, stress levels or something like that. Mm. Imagine if you could track 50 different parameters with an implant and uh, you can also use, like he said in the book, which I was, which, which I thought was really interesting, a um, smart toilet where you can add a sensor inside the toilet and you can pee on it every day without thinking about it. And that could that can track even more parameters. You can track um, sugar uh, in your urine. You can track vitamin deficiencies. You can track hormones. So if you pair all these parameters, biometrics, which are really accessible in in a year or so, Mm. probably, um, if you also do uh, a genomic scan and you find out where you come from and what what your um, what your DNA says about diseases and uh, risks, then you can have a pretty good map and understanding of how you can adjust your lifestyle, um, preventing disease hmm. instead of going to the hospital when you when it already has occurred. So, um, I think when I think that's when people are like, oh. Really, yeah, that's that's so cool, and it's uh, it's not 
It's not that far away. It's not away. that far away. It's, it's around the corner. Yeah. And it has to do with, of course, regulation and uh, GDPR stuff. <laughs> and, sure, uh, there's a lot of data know, on privacy. us. That will... um, but it would be, in theory, it would be possible. He, he claims that we could actually, um, you know, collect genome data from the entire population in a way. Because mm. it's not expensive anymore. It's cheap. And I'm sure that would have huge benefits for situations like these. Uh, we're, that's where we're in right now. Exactly. Track track people's uh, track the virus in a way. Yeah. Another interesting aspect is that we react very differently to to medicine, mm. to different medicine, depending on our genome. So if we know that in advance, the doctor can prescribe or an AI can prescribe something that would suit me, and not you for the same disease. So uh, there's a lot of stuff uh, happening and a lot of stuff that could happen faster in this area. Fascinating stuff. Um, we both record in this podcast studio. It's a busy podcast studio, so uh, we have uh, another show coming in. Uh, Christian von Essen, uh, thank you so much for all your, your wonderful work and I look forward to following it and uh, hopefully have you on again soon. Thank you so much. Thank you. You've been listening to the Scandinavian Mind podcast with me, Conrad Olsen. This show was edited by Eric Sedin. If you like what you heard, follow us on your preferred podcast app like Spotify or Apple Podcasts. To get the latest news, insights and invites to upcoming events, sign up to our newsletter. Just go to ScandinavianMind.com to become part of our movement.